You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 19th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. All right, so guys, I'm almost not mm. sick. That's where I'm at. I'm ha- Thanks proud to of Steve. You. Uh, you, you've you've been sick for all of April, have you not? Pretty much. <sighs> Pretty much. I am getting sick, you guys. I woke up today <gasps> with like that post-nasal drip, that burning in my throat. I've been popping um, cough drops with benzocaine like candy. I'm so annoyed because I'm on a plane tomorrow, as of this recording, right? It's the middle of the week. I'm on a plane tomorrow to co-host the, the March for Science Cool. Oh, awesome. right. hosting the rally. Yeah, Where, up DC? on stage wow. in DC, the big one awesome. with um, Derek Muller of Veritasium and Questlove Gomez of the Roots. It's going to be so much fun. Are you and flying I United? I really hope I'm not sick. I know. I actually told them not to book a United ticket, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the clear. But get this, you guys. Whoa. Literally last week we were talking about styes. Remember? Yeah. 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 I got a remember? freaking sty in my eye. How? Uh oh. Self fulfilling prophecy. Did you I touch got Bob? One, Oh my gosh. I got one on Friday. It popped up out of the blue. I texted Bob frantically, like, how do I treat this? <laughs> it must be psychogenic, Kara. No, it's. You gave it to yourself. You willed it. You willed it. It's just a you really should've... weird coincidence, you guys. <laughs> and so I read go. read the secret, you know? Right. I go to the, uh, the grocery store or the pharmacy. Because I'm like, what can you do to treat a sty? Bob's like, you, you know, hot compress. And of course, that's what I ended up doing. But I'm looking to see if there's any ointments or anything. All homeopathic. Yeah, every, uh, single, every single thing on the shelf. Because all you can really do for a sty is put a hot compress on it. But I did a hot compress four times a day like you're supposed to over the course of the three or four days that it takes for it to go away. Yikes. And it destroyed the skin around my eye. It's peeling. Oh, it's maybe it was so too hot. gross. Uh, Wait, what did I think that? I, I just have very, very uh-huh. sensitive skin. How hot were you going? Just, you know, warm. Not so hot that it was burning or anything. But I have the kind of skin where if you um, s- scratch your arm, it whelps up and will stay like that for an hour. Oh, wow. You're just- it's oh, just yeah. very you're, reactive you're just to heat and to and to abrasions and stuff. Yeah. So, um, so I'm dealing with that now. It's really fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, my attitude mm. is sty schmai. Talk to me when it turns into a hard lump that needs to be removed surgically by, by injecting Novocaine into your eyelid. <laughs> and we'll the talk. little the little bump is still there it's gone way down so my eyelid doesn't look droopy and stupid anymore but there's still a little hard nodule in my lid it just doesn't hurt oh, i'm hoping boy. that's just a remnant and it goes away probably just but, pierce probably. it put a piercing just, in there yeah just cover stick it a needle in my eye <laughs> like newton well you guys are so cute because last week i felt like i was getting sick you know when you from one minute to the next you you feel like a sickness it's like yep yeah something's coming i'm there and right now so i i felt that last week and then an hour later it was gone oh i Good. hope that i yeah. i hope False in catching alarm. your sty i also catch your not quite sick sickness i, I just rolled a 20 when it comes to constitution <laughs> <laughs> You could interpret it that way. You can't actually say <laughs> when you say you roll the twenty, Bob. Yeah, is that a twenty-sided die? What does that mean? What are you yes, talking about, that Jay? It would be more accurate for you to say I have an eighteen constitution. Well, it depends on what system you're using: three or three point five, or, or, or oh, two. Oh no! Okay, or okay, two. okay. <laughs> Getting too nerdy in here. <laughs> and talk about the technical names well, of all right? these drugs, but when it comes to D and D versions, <laughs> exactly, that's, that's, that's I can't handle much. it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh wait 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 one more thing hmm. my mom texted me a picture the other day of her and her husband at the renaissance fair 
I had cool. no idea cool. my parents were nerds. Yes, that's awesome. You got to go with level two geekdom. I they love were it. secret nerds. I asked them if next up they were going to start LARPing. They laughed, oh, but we'll they see. They knew what that meant? Uh-oh. Kara, they <laughs> laughed. They <laughs> laughed, but they looked at they're each other. there. Right? Exactly. Like, well, what should we tell her? They had full costumes. Like, he had a Scottish kilt. Oh, like a they're, full Scottish they're LARPing. kilt. They're LARPing. Yeah. Oh, people, please, who go to, people who go to Ren Fairs and dress up want to LARP, even if they don't realize it yet. <laughs> and then once you do LARP, you're like, why the hell was I wasting my time going to Ren Fairs? Exactly. Yeah. I, just, I just love that she's discovering this in her late 60s. It That's makes awesome. me so happy. Good for them, I, know. I love it. Very cool. All right, Kara, what's the word? The word this week is a good one. So last week um, on my social media channels, I always share all the cool science stories of the week that I come across. And last week I shared a story about um, a possible link between celiac disease and the T1L reovirus. A bunch of people thought it was an autocorrect from retrovirus. I actually did too the first time I saw the um, article until I read deeper. And so, uh, you know, so many people pointed out, oh, you mean retro? virus it's like no it's actually a real virus so why haven't we heard of them because they're insanely common and in fact you guys probably we all have some in our gut or our respiratory respiratory tract right now because um they're we commonly carry them and they don't often cause disease um Reoviridae is actually the family name of a reovirus. it um there are nine genera um underneath that but only Four of those have been known to infect animals, orthoreovirus, rotavirus, coltivirus, and orbivirus. And oftentimes when we say the word reovirus, it's short of, it's sort of shorthand for orthoreovirus, even though it can also refer to the overall family. If you subdivide that more, we've probably all heard of rotavirus. Rotavirus group A causes the most human disease of all the Reoviridae combined. Um, it still causes hundreds of thousands of diarrheal deaths every year, but often those are in kids, elderly individuals, and they're usually in developing countries. There's a vaccine. Um, we've had. Yeah, we've had a vaccination program in place for a long time. And so our infection rates are really low. Um, but even if we do have infection rates, it's usually well managed with proper care, like most diarrheal um, diseases. Um, but in developing world nations, it's really, really hard to to combat that. So um, specifically, we define reoviruses by their lack of a lipid envelope, their double-stranded RNA. And this is the coolest part. They have these concentric capsid shells where their DNA is packaged, sometimes two, t- sometimes three. It's like shell, shell, shell. And here's a really cool thing. The term reovirus was coined in 1959 by Albert Sabin of polio fame. He actually developed the live attention attenuated oral polio vaccine around the same time that Jonas Salk developed his killed vaccine. So it was coined by Sabin, and it's actually an acronym for Respiratory Enteric Orphan Virus, Rio virus. Um, orphan, not because it was found in orphans, um, but because when it was first discovered, it wasn't found to actually have a relationship to disease. It seemed to be only in healthy individuals, and nobody could track down how that virus was connected to any disease state. Since then, um, obviously, we've discovered the few that I mentioned, but still, most reoviruses can be found in fecal swabs and um, in, in totally healthy individuals. It's pretty interesting. All right. Here's a, here's a, a bit of trivia. Who invented the rotavirus vaccine? Uh, Johnny Roto Rooter. Paul Offit. Paul Offit. That is correct. Wow. Yes. Paul Offit. Nice. With Fred Clark and Stanley Plotkin. Uh, but yeah, he's one of the co inventors. Holy of crap. The rotavirus vaccine. Yeah, isn't that cool? Very cool. Sweet. All right. Thanks, Kara. That's interesting. Yeah. 
we're going to go on to some news items. So what do you guys know about the Ice Age megafauna extinction? Uh, well, the, those are some big fauna. Lots of animals and they are fauna. Big, the big animals, big animals died. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked oh, about yeah. this on the show actually a few times. Did humans do it or was it some environmental thing? That's, that's the big that's question, the right? That's key, right? Yes. So like from about 15,000 to 11,000 years ago when the last glacial period was ending and the, and the glaciers were melting – uh, the megafauna, not just of North America, but also of Europe, uh, those were dying off. They were going extinct. They were basically, the world was losing its megafauna. Like the give, really big give animals. Some examples. Yeah, like, give some examples. Mastodon. Like the woolly mammoth. Yeah, the mastodon, the saber tooth lion, and the giant tree sloth, for example. Mm. So giant the question has been, is it, was it mainly due to hunting by people? Did we, you know, kill and eat them, or was it due to the all the environmental change that was happening at the transition, you know, the end of the glacial period, like in the movie Ice Age: The Big Melt? You may have seen that, Kara. Uh, no? The cartoon. The cartoon. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> yes. I did not. No, I did not see that. Uh, is some combination of the two inappropriate? Or some combination of the two? There it's were two not a cartoon. Stretches. It's a CG spectacle. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, now. Researchers have a third hypothesis or a third factor that may have contributed to the megafauna extinction. They say that they may have died off partly because it was moist. What? What? Humidity? <laughs> they were too moist. Moisture. I don't like that word moist. How many more times are you going to say it? I know. It? That's why I'm saying <laughs> it is one of those words like when you use the moist, like moist. <laughs> He's moistly done saying. Yeah, moistly. <laughs> so yeah, so here's here's what they think happened. Well, first let me tell you the evidence that they have for it, so that you could look at the bones, right? Look at the bones of the dead animals, <laughs> and you could tell by looking at the nitrogen isotopes. It's nitrogen. That yeah, in the especially in the bones of herbivores, you could tell what kind of plants they were eating. And there's a different isotopes between the kind of plants that you will see in dry environments and the kind of plants that you will see in moist or wet environments. And what they find everywhere they look uh, is a sharp uptick in the moisture of the plants that the megafauna were eating right before they went extinct. Hmm. So what could have happened is that all of the water that was melting from the glaciers was, glaciers was putting – moisture back into the air and uh, at the time you had a which is very actually similar to now you had a lot of open grasslands and the megafauna were largely adapted to these large open grasslands but then as the moisture content of the environment increased they would grasslands would turn into swamps and then into forests because that's what basically determines those ecosystems, right? You know, grasslands are too dry to support forests. That's why they grow grass. But if they had enough water, they would grow – trees would start to predominate. They would take over. So the vegetation that you see in the grasslands is very different than the vegetation in a forest. It, it, generally, forests have – forest greenery is much more toxic and difficult to digest. So animals that were well adapted to the grasslands – would have been uh, under a lot of stress to try to survive in either swamp or forests. So that's their hypothesis, that melting glaciers, increased moisture, you know, ecological change from grasslands to swamp to forest happening, you know, pretty much right at the moment where, you know, geologically speaking, when the megafauna was going extinct. So 
This is one study. This is one line of evidence. It'd be nice to see that the ecosystems were actually changing, you know, not just, you know, a suggestion that they could have been changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this doesn't let, you know, human hunters or other climate change off the hook. This could, again, you know, oftentimes a mass extinction can be due to multiple factors hitting at once. Because you could think of it in terms of obviously something really big happens, you know, yeah, that can cause an extinction all by itself. But uh, otherwise, you know, some big stressor species can migrate, they can adapt, you know, there's a little bit of flexibility in there. But you have two or three stressors at the same time, and you can get entire ecosystems collapsing and and mass extinction. So it it certainly could be that all three of those stressors were important factors uh, in the in the the recent megafauna extinction. Cool. But of course, you read it and like moisture killed the, you know, the woolly mammoth. Really? Moisture? Um, yeah. Cool. yeah it's not it kinda... sounds so not real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't. It's not. Sometimes we hear about science and it just computes. It just seems very likely. It's like, oh, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. I can reason through it. And then sometimes you hear these kind of uh, these hypotheses that just don't sit well logically for whatever reason. It's like opposite truthiness. I'm not feeling this. Well, it's counterintuitive, right? So we just say there you not go. everything that's counterintuitive is wrong. Sometimes things are counterintuitive True. because of a limitations of our intuition. Of Look at quantum feels, mechanics. Yeah, it looks yeah, feels absolutely. right. So we have to – yeah, but certainly – you have to think carefully about things like that. Does this not feel right because there's something wrong with it or because it's just different? It's just not mm-hmm. what I would expect. Is it just a, a limitation of my own expectations? I mean, at the end of the day, I think they have a perfectly reasonable line of evidence. It's just, it's just fairly thin, you know, as evidence and goes. What specifically is it that they couldn't process their food as well? Is it because their food was getting drowned out because they were losing habitat because it was getting washed out? Yeah, so like, they, what they're thinking is that it was the mm-hmm. change in the plants that were available and just the, the grass that they were living on wasn't available anymore. There were bushes and trees and they weren't adapted to eating it. Yeah. So the animals that were better adapted to, to, to that vegetation predominated. Look at the character Moist from Dr. Horrible. I mean, does that look like an evolutionary cul-de-sac to you? <laughs> I don't know him. I'm okay. sorry. It's okay. Have you seen Dr. <laughs> Horrible, Kara? <laughs> no. Put it no. on the list. Damn it, the <laughs> list is so – it's impossibly it. long. I'll forget it. The list is just <laughs> – uh, we're, we're starting to get monster. pissed off, Kara. I know. We're going to end up having some like some like clockwork on. orange session she's, one of these days. My eyes are just going to be like pinned open. <laughs> but you have seen the clockwork orange. Absolutely, and I've okay. read it, and <laughs> and the version answer, that I Karen. read, yes, Even if you didn't, uh, by answer. Anthony Burgess, right? The, the, the version right. that I read did not yes. have a dictionary in the back. Apparently, oh, then how the hell did you know what the yeah? Words were? I know. Apparently, now you can buy it with like a glossary of. Yeah, terms. it has a glossary. It was all context glossary. clues when I read it. No, the, I had a, <laughs> I had easy. a version a long time ago that had the dictionary in the back. Yeah, the okay, so I just bought maybe the two dollar less version that I shouldn't have bought. Yeah. Um, but Real but yes, very show. very good. Love it. You Love know it. what the slang Real is, harsh. right? Uh, double plus good. No no no, that that's what is 1984. That? Oh. The slang from Oh, you're right. That was 1984. Orange. Yeah, the slang from a clockwork orange. It's all bastardized Russian. Oh, yes. interesting. So, like it, good in Russian is horror show. And that got huh. bastardized horror into show. horror oh, show. Horror show. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. That is Real brilliant. Horror show. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, my wife Clever. studied Russian in college, and that's when I read it and saw it for the first time. So she was like able to translate all of the slang. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Devochka. Devochka is, you know, an old woman. Um, huh. Yeah. So if you that's read it awesome. again, I, yeah, the, all those words are actually either Russian or, or bastardized Russian. It's cool. What about Mr. Deltoid? Sense. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Deltoid, yes. <laughs> a little bit of extreme yes. <laughs> How do you guys have it's such good memories for this shit? Well, that's the, that's what always blows my mind. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> How have you had enough time to watch all these movies 300 times? 300! 300! <laughs> <laughs> See? You remember that. One. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Bob, yes. I understand that oxygen is not as critical for life. Eh. As some people uh, Speak who, for yourself. Who needs it? So I do, I do. <laughs> surveys done at Yellowstone National Park are elucidating the, uh, the cool chemosynthetic life forms that live there. Um, by doing this, they are also revealing details about not only the earliest life on Earth – but the likely alien life that also may exist in our very own solar system. Now, this study was done by Montana State University researchers. This was all laid out in their paper in the journal uh, FEMS Microbiology Ecology. The paper is called Ecological Differentiation in Planktonic and Sediment-Associated Chemotrophic Microbial Populations in Yellowstone Hot Springs. I love those titles. Holy crap. Um, <laughs> very technical. So, <laughs> so Yellowstone National Park is known for its obviously for its diverse flora and fauna, but the most interesting locations in Yellowstone would certainly kill almost any life on Earth if it tried to actually live there. Uh, of course, I'm referring to the hot springs. Uh, they are they are of course colorful and beautiful, but they're also deadly as hell. And but it's not anathema to all of life. My good friends, the extremophiles, uh, yes. these microbes uh, can take the heat and acidity in stride. Because that's what they do. Um, so these are, are typically bacteria and archaea, which are which are like bacteria, but even older and more diverse, uh, such that they they have their own domain, which we touched upon, I think, last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. So Montana, yeah. So Montana State University did uh, did a survey. They took samples from fifteen hot springs in uh, in the park, and they looked at uh, two different types of microbes: ones that were f- either swimming freely, called them planktonic. Or they stayed in the sediment. They're just in the sediment, and that's where they hang out and spend all their time uh, not swimming around in the water at all. Um, they also examined very closely the water and the sediments themselves to see what, what their chemistry looked like. So one of their main goals was to study the oxidants that these organisms use. Now, an oxidant, you may guess, is simply the substance that, that an animal uses to capture energy. For humans uh, and most animal life, that's oxygen. Oxygen is wonderful. It's very efficient at, uh, at doing what it does and keeping us alive. But chemosynthetic organisms don't have oxygen available for whatever reason. They use other less efficient oxidants like like an oxidized iron or sulfur to do the work. It's not as good as oxygen, but hey, I mean, if that's what's around you, then that's fine. And it does work. So the findings. So the researchers found that the extremophiles in the water were mostly microaerophiles probably guess from the name itself what that means. They can't live long without oxygen, uh, but they can get by with far less than is usually required. Um, if, for example, the Earth lost a boatload of the oxygen that, that's in our atmosphere, say down to whatever, like 10, 15%, they would still be fine. They'd be, they'd be totally fine. But of course, 
billions of, of animals would, would die if that happened, actually. So that's the, um, that's the planktonic microbes. They were the microaerophiles. The extremophiles in the sediment in the hot springs were mostly chemosynthetic, relying on inorganic substances as an oxidant like sulfur and iron. Now, chemosynthetic, I know we've mentioned this. I didn't really mention in detail what, what exactly that is, we've, but we've, we've mentioned it many times on the show. Basically, it's a, it's a form of life that derives its, its energy not from the sun or photosynthesis in any way but but mainly from from the environment and from 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 minerals and uh and and things that are available in the environment which is, has always fascinated the hell out of me you, can, you know there's these creatures that live not only at uh Yellowstone Park in the hot springs but also at the bottom of the ocean by these uh by these vents these deep sea hydrothermal vents that are over 200 degrees and and incredibly dense you know, imagine how how dense the water is at, at that at that depth, and they're just like la la la. This is nothing. This is fine. And there's like no photosynthesis anywhere, and they're getting around. So regarding these results, Daniel Coleman, a geomicrobiologist researcher, said understanding the present day distribution of microorganisms as they relate to environmental factors can provide an idea how life evolved in response to changing environments over Earth's history and over the history of life's evolution. So that's so that's part of the point right here. The earliest life on Earth had to be chemosynthetic, right? The first oxygen was not produced uh, by cyanobacteria or blue-green algae until, say, you know, 3 billion years ago or maybe 2.7 billion years ago. So you're talking a huge chunk of time where there was like basically no oxygen. So how did, what, what was life doing? Well, of course, um, the, these extremophiles were, you know, were, were living off of what was available to them and it wasn't oxygen. So these extremophile archaea uh, organisms are basically the closest relatives to the first life that was on Earth. So learning more about them teaches us about what the first life was like. So that's, that's one huge benefit. So the other major point here for me anyway was that this knowledge could also help, uh, help us to better prepare for the non-terrestrial life that we may find, say, on Europa or Enceladus. And uh, let me tell you, it looks pretty good, in my opinion, that that's exactly what we're going to find. We're going to, th- I think if I had to put money on it, I would bet that we are going to find some weird chemosynthetic organisms that are not based on our DNA at all on these planets. Everything is there. So, Bob, let me, let me ask you a question, Bob. <clears throat> Do you think it's dangerous for us to bring something that alien back to Earth? No, not at all. I mean, if this, if this is, if this is alien biology with DNA not like ours and different proteins, it's not like in the movies. How are they going to possibly infect us or do anything to us uh, if it's completely alien biology? It, 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 it'd be like tr- you know trying to have trying to interface uh, you know a basic computer language with C plus plus. It's like they just don't mesh. They don't they don't they don't work well together. They're, how you know how is that going to work? It, it would you know the alien life would see us as something just so foreign that it wouldn't. What, what could it do? Um, but Bob, isn't I'm that not worried. what the I'm aliens about want it. you to believe? <laughs> <laughs> do you think these, uh, it, let's say there are these life molecules out on the out on Enceladus or Europa, that um, in these jets that are being spewed basically out into space, are the, is the life within those jets being spewed out? In other words, is it something we can like fly by and capture? We don't have to actually land on the planet and... Just go grab samples of that, and we'll and we'll Absolutely. know right away. They're probably not alive anymore, but we can certainly capture organic material uh, in those sure. jet streams. Yeah, absolutely. We would. We should be able. We 
would learn a lot if we could directly sample you know those geysers from Enceladus. Absolutely. How cold are those guys? I mean, they're out in space. Like, is the water just freezing instantly? Sure. And then we just like have to grab like an ice cube or an ice. Yeah, uh, a lot of it is an ice. Ices. The the crystals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm sure they crystallize but, very quickly. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. I don't think we need any sort of what new technology to invent or that we have to wait on in order to do this. Can't we just design the probes to go into orbit around these around these moons, have them collect whatever is being spewed up into the in, in, into the uh, into space, collect the stuff and analyze well, it? Well, they have to figure out a way to collect it. I mean, that's all engineering, like massive engineering feats. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we don't we don't have the collector technology in order to. Well, the real game changer, the real game changer is the is are these vents that they were the game changer because that means that it is bringing stuff from the subsurface out onto yeah. the surface and in, in space because otherwise, before that, everyone was talking about we got a drill and it's going to be deep right. and then you don't want to infect it and all this stuff. Major engine, that's major engineering. That's like whoa, that's like a major, never been done really off planet ever before. This stuff is like waiting for us. It, there could be fossils laying on the surface of Europa or Enceladus right now, just waiting for a, a good camera to, to take a real good close up or for some you know analyzer to examine what's there, or it could be. In you know being spewed into space, we don't so you don't even have to land potentially. So right. that's you think the that game there could changer. Be fossils, not necessarily no, but but some sort of some evidence, some sort of fossilized remains that would you know would point to mm. some sort of organisms. I mean, we you know we 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 see remnants from microbes that are billions of years old from the tunnels they made or 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 things that they excreted. Uh, so now I'm not necessarily looking for hard shells, although that would be cool too. But we haven't even found that yet on Mars. Like, don't we feel like there's a good chance that that could exist on Mars? And we're like there rolling around looking at the rocks. Yeah, not as much. Not as much. So Mars has a couple yeah. of disadvantages. Mars right. does not have uh, liquid water on the surface, right? Although it might it used to and it may still have some underground. Mars has a yeah, lot of perchlorates true. in the soil, and that's very unfriendly to life. Yeah, but that at least may, it has be soil. <laughs> water's better. Water is better. It's water is water's better. better. But I, Europa is much better op- opportunity for life. Yeah, but Mars. I don't think water is better for fossilization. That's what I'm concerned about: is actually being able to find intact. Uh, you know, something that points because again, isn't that the astrobiologist quandary? It's like even if we found life, would we know it? You know, where's the cutoff between the building blocks of life and something that's actually a functional organism? Well, let's go take a look and find out. Yes. Evan, I think this news item gets my vote for like the worst report. <laughs> now, wait a minute. <laughs> but Steve, the, doesn't the headline say it all? Tell us <laughs> about this. Device that can literally read your mind invented by scientists. Oh, easily- how come I haven't heard about that? <laughs> because, you, because you read real science, Kara. <laughs> Crap. It is described as an easily operated machine linked to a smartphone. Could be ready within five years. Okay, so five they're projecting. Years. Project, right, there it is. Five years, ten years. The sweet spot, right, of science. Well, okay. So a research group from... Uh, Toyohashi University of Technology in Japan had a, a press release uh, just recently in which they announced that they've developed a technology that can recognize, well, here's their, uh, here's their uh, work they did on it, that can recognize the numbers 0 to 9 with 90% accuracy using brainwaves or EEGs while subjects utter the numbers. Right. So they utter the numbers and they have a technology that can 
sense through the brainwaves what number it is the person is uttering. Furthermore, the technology has also realized the recognition of 18 types of Japanese monosyllables from EEG signals with 60% accuracy, and they claim that shows the possibility of an EEG-activated typewriter in the near future. That's a teletype, I suppose, of sorts. Can you imagine a typewriter <laughs> with a 61% accuracy? <laughs> it would be... <laughs> Have you ever used the voice recognition software? Yes, Dragon or uh, yeah, like it, it was like at ninety five percent, it's unusable. <laughs> you know? right. Seriously, you, you really need you really need very very high accuracy for those things to be anything other than just an exercise in frustration. Yeah, even even Siri is still really frustrating for me. My car texts for me; I can tell it what to say, and it'll text people, and it always is weird. Yeah. It's never what I actually tried to say. Tried no. to tell your car to send somebody a text. This happened to me the other day, saying I'm really craving jicama rolls. What? <laughs> yes, that did not do well. Are, it's just not going to get. <laughs> but I, I have to find. I oh, find it geez. very, very helpful and useful. But I do need to consciously slow down and and you know enunciate better. And then it's fine. Then it's really good. If I just talk conversationally, forget it. Oh, no, forget it. And I tried that five times with hiccup my rolls, but they were hiccup my rolls and there were all sorts of things. So it I doesn't know that word. Uh, that is not in the dictionary <laughs> for some reason. Siri, get on this. That's right. Come on, Siri. <laughs> You're our only hope. <laughs> You're our only hope. <laughs> the, the obvious sort of purpose behind these experiments and these, uh, and these designs that they did was that they're hoping that in the, fu- in the near future, uh, they'll have sufficient technology accessible enough in which people who are, who are, have uh, injuries or, or conditions in which they cannot express themselves vocally will certainly be able to do so with the help of artificial intelligence and these computers and and then eventually as they're projecting forward into uh, into our smartphones you just have an app on the smartphone for these people so that they can you know tell us with 90 percent accuracy what what it is they they are thinking so yeah, it's all you know, yeah mm. it, it sounds quite <laughs> dubious at the on the surface, and they certainly don't offer a lot of details. Now they say the details of the research is going to be presented at something called Interspeech 2017, a convention of some sort held in Stockholm, coming up in August. So I guess we'll get some more technical details of exactly what it is they're doing. But, you know, so Steve, let me tell you what I yeah, think, though. So, yeah, from this. so you can see from the pictures that they're using scalp electrodes, right? So these are not implanted electrodes. These are a cap of electrodes on the outside of your of your scalp. Uh, and they're using uh, learning, learning algorithms computer. so that the, you know, the computer can get better and better at sorting out like what elect EEG, you know, electroencephalogram activity your brain is having while you're doing these various things. There's a couple of, of limitations to this. So I would say at best, at best, this is a very incremental advance on this technology. Uh, probably, I mean, on the software, cause there's the, the, the hardware technology that they're using, the, the electrodes and whatnot, they seem to be using off the shelf stuff so that there's no doesn't seem to be any technological advance there it maybe they got a little bit better at writing the learning algorithm that is discerning the eeg patterns 
and you know being able to tell them apart. But I don't even know that because you know the, the, I don't know of other researchers who have done tried to separate these specific kind of things. Other researchers mm-hmm. have focused on images or uh, like controlling a cursor or controlling a robotic arms, things like that. So. This you know this could be just another example of research that's already been done, or at best, it's a very slight incremental advance. But the the article spends most of its time projecting this technology into the future with wild abandon <laughs> and absolutely no restraint. You know, so uh, first of all, five years get out of here. You know, that's just <laughs> not going to happen. And then they say things like, "Yeah, they're hoping to get it into." Like the the software into a smartphone. All right, that's probably the most plausible aspect of this. Even that, I'm dubious about because, like, you know, I, I need to know like what kind of computing power are they using for this algorithm, and what are they expecting to get into a smartphone? Are they, you know, are they accounting on massive improvements in smartphone technology in five years, or are they somehow thinking they're going to pare down the software? Because that doesn't seem very likely. Then they're they're saying that they're going to be able to do it with much fewer electrodes. Oh, that's just crap. I just don't agree with that at all. The whole point to to improving computers' ability to um, differentiate what you're thinking from your brain waves from your EEG more connections is more sensitivity is more resolution. Yeah, they're saying we're going to do better with less resolution. Sorry, how, how exactly? I don't will see they it. Do yeah, that, right? I don't see that. They're 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 then expecting some kind of game change. In their software ability, which I don't, you know, okay, I'll, be, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but I'm dubious about that. Uh, so, you know, what this, what this technology really needs are better electrodes that we can put inside the skull uh, safely and, and sustainably. That, that's the real thing. And yeah, and then continued incremental advances in the, in the software are fine. And again, at best, that's what we're seeing here. Now, the other thing that, that struck me is that the people were still talking. You know, like they were saying zero, one, mm-hmm. two. That affects the EEG. How come? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of my main questions is how. Well, because muscles produce 100 times more electricity yeah, than your that. brain does, you know, through the skull. And so, yeah, yeah. So if you're, there's, yeah, so if, if people are doing anything, you get these massive motor artifacts on your EEG. So I wonder how they're controlling for that. You know, right. If I say the number one, how does it differentiate between the word O N E versus W O N? Right. Oh, I don't think we're anywhere near that. I mean, they're just right. There's so much overlap, it seems, between yeah the between you know the words we actually use in our in our everyday lives and sort of what the brain is putting out as as these waves that is being read by the EEG. It'd be like. You know, too many, too many different ways to interpret it. It leaves it like open to a lot of uh, sub, of uh, subjectiveness to me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. What kinds of things? What kinds of things, Steve? Like, as of EEG technology right now, can we can we tell by looking at an EEG readout? We can tell if somebody's eyes are open versus closed. Right? Yeah, but yeah, but that's that's kind of cheaty because the your eye is a huge dipole. Yeah, it, I guess that's true. The retina is negative and the cornea is positive. I'm pretty sure that's so. Correct. Even being and able so to tell if you, your when eyes you are close your eyes, cheating. when you close your eyes, your eyes flip up. So you're yeah. flipping this huge dipole, which causes a massive artifact 
on your EEG. So yeah, hmm. so it can tell that because if your eye happens because to... Because of the artifact. Because the, your eye ha- is a dipole. <laughs> right. But we um, can't tell the difference between reading a number and saying oh my a God, number. No, if we don't. No, we, like none of that. It's just like we can tell like different brain wave states in sleep and things with an EEG. Yeah, we could tell. Obviously, we could tell the overall state of your brain. We could tell the different yeah. parts of your brain and we could see how the different mm-hmm. parts of your brain are functioning in relation to each other. And, and the, the software is getting good at picking up you know more and more subtle changes in terms of you know regional differences in the EEG, and they're also EEGs are obviously for detecting seizures, and so the the technology and the software et cetera is getting good at picking out you know being able to analyze the waveforms and and detect seizures and pick out intermittent abnormal waves you know pathological stuff like that. But knowing what you're thinking in any way, no, mm-hmm. that's it, it's so far you know what we we've needed. Either like a ton of electrodes on the scalp, and even that is not as good as having electrodes on the brain. We need real brain, sensitivity. Yeah. And then, you know, between a limited number – and the other thing is the, the, the other research has required a significant amount of training – not only of the software, but of the person. You know, you almost have to learn to control your brain waves in order to like move the cursor or move the robotic arm. They're saying they don't, they're going to eliminate that or have a very, very short training phase too. But there's, I don't see any evidence to support that claim. Uh, anyway, this, this art, the reporting is terrible because it's all hype and it doesn't put this into context of what, like where we really are with this research. This is exciting. This is genuinely exciting. And I think, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, this could be a real game changer in, in a lot of the ways that they say. But scientists did not invent a device that reads your mind. But that's the, we're going to see that headline a hundred times yeah. over the next 20 years. Every time there's another incremental advance. But yeah, a hundred incremental advances from now, maybe we'll be somewhere. But, if, but that doesn't make sexy headlines, right? The baby steps. So that's what we're going to see. But that's why it's, yeah, good science. It's incremental. This whole field is very interesting, but we're, we're a long way from something very practical and horrible science reporting. That's what we're dealing right. with. Right. Certainly yeah. not five years away. No, no. Yep. I'd be surprised. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Blue Apron. Guys, Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. What happens is you go on their website, you tell them how many people are going to be there, and you pick the recipes that you like, and they send you the ingredients to make those meals. And they don't send you extra ingredients, they send you exactly what you need to make the meals. And Blue Apron is everywhere. It can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. And if you live in a food desert, like a lot of Americans do, you can still very, very likely get this wonderful food. Yeah, Blue Apron is really affordable as well. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron will deliver excellent recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make really fantastic home-cooked meals. You can choose a variety of new recipes each week. Or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you with their choices. And I think you will will be surprised. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free Whoa! with free shipping <laughs> by going to blueapron.com slash SGU. That's blueapron.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, this one has been making the rounds about Alex Jones, who I don't think we've actually spoken a lot about on this show. So tell us what's going on. Yeah, I don't think we have. 
to be honest. I mean, I just kind of ignore the guy. You know, yeah, I, I, I tune him way out. I agree. I think he's so far out there, it's like almost not even worth talking about. I last brought him up, I think, at a Nexus maybe five or six years ago when we were talking about 9-11 conspiracies, and he, yeah. he definitely came up in that in that subject. Well, I mean, so well, I got a question before you even start, Jay. Why is this guy so ignorable? I mean, some people have, have said to us, you know, th- this guy rakes in a boatload of money. He taught, mm-hmm. he has a huge audience. He has an incredibly popular website. Why, why would, why do we ignore somebody? I'll like tell you this? why. I, I generally ignore him because I don't think he's sincere and I don't want to like debunk claims that somebody's making that even they don't believe. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Okay. Makes well, in, sense. Case, yeah, he- in case you, our audience, don't know who Alex Jones is, he is the host of a show called InfoWars where he delivers his, and this is all my opinion, his semi-delusional conspiracy-laden rants on current political affairs. Now, semi, semi. If, if you watch his show, it, it's it's mind-numbing, you know, just how how good this guy is at ranting and and seemingly coming up with with information on the fly, like you know, I I don't know how he could possibly prepare that much BS for each one of his shows. He's got to be got to be making it up as he as he goes. Um, he often yells. He has a very uh, very strong demeanor, and uh, you know, and he is entertaining. I'll admit that, of course. I mean, the guy. You know, he has a very big personality and he's, he, his, he is entertaining even from a, a skeptic's perspective, even though you want to puke when you hear what he has to say. So Bob, um, Bob was right. The guy has a, a real audience here. So he's got, um, his show airs on 150 stations. He's got 7.6 million unique visitors on his website last month and 2 million sub- subscribers on his YouTube page. And you know, th- those uh, numbers equate to big dollars. At that at that size, he's making quite a quite a bit of money off of off of. But his to show. see, I mean, what kinds of advertisers can he get? They can't be mainstream. I, Guns know, and ammo. Question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah you know, know, isn't that how you make yeah, your money? Though most uh, of your money's from ad sales, right? Yeah, yeah. Survi- yeah. the survivalist yeah, store. Well, he has two websites. That's true. Gold, and, right? He probably oh, yeah, advertises gold. for uh-huh. gold. Yeah, he has ads on his web pages. Yeah. Give you an example of some of the things that he says. Uh, he said uh, at one point that former President Obama and Hillary Clinton were demons. Literally demons. Demons. Okay? Right. Not, oh, that guy's a demon. He's like, this person is actually from hell, demon. Yeah. Okay? That's, yeah. So- that is profound. He challenged uh, Alec Baldwin to a cage match. He uh, he said the Sandy Hook school shooting, which it was happened in our backyard here in Connecticut, said that this was a government false flag operation, yeah. essentially saying ah, it was a, a fake. See, this is, what, this is where you start shit. to – right. You start to get enraged at a person mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. He um, not only believed in Pizzagate, you know, the whole like porno thing oh, out of the God. pizza parlor, you know, you know high-end politicians having sex with kids – Nonsense. He didn't just believe it, but he talked about it a lot and essentially supported that whole conspiracy theory. Oh, so, Jay, re- Jay, to be clear, we don't know if he believed it. He said it. He, he <laughs> said it don't. on his show, yes. He, yeah, he promoted big, it. Big yeah. disclaimer here is we don't know what the the real Alex Jones actually believes or doesn't believe. We're, we're, you know, can only, we can only comment on his persona that you see on the show. So here's the deal. So the reason why we are bending an eye at this guy really isn't 
because of the stuff that he says, you know, because it really is just lacking any intelligent uh, perspective at all. It's because he's getting divorced and his divorce actually is is very interesting. And the reason why is he Jones is currently in a custody battle with his ex-wife, Kelly, over their children, and he wants sole custody of their three children. And she says he's not fit to be a father because, well, you know, look at his show, right? Which, you know, if anyone had seen his show you, and you think, man, could that guy be a parent with that demeanor? You know, his, he's temperamental. He's, and she's saying he's temperamental, unstable. He's dangerous. So in response to this, Jones's lawyer, Randall Wilheat, made an amazing comment. He told the state district judge that using his client Alex's, Alex Jones's on-air InfoWars persona to evaluate Alex Jones as a father would be like judging Jack Nicholson in a custody dispute based on his performance as the Joker in Batman. And then later on, the lawyer continues. He says he's playing a character. He is a performance artist. Now, that makes a very clear line in the sand saying that his on camera persona is not who the man actually is. And we can only extrapolate from that saying that the beliefs that he shares on his show are probably not his beliefs for for who he really is in his Assert- Right? Yeah, certainly comes into question, I think. Then we can, now we could start crawling down the rabbit hole now that, now that the stage has been set. So question number one, is Jones putting on this whole persona? Is, or is it somewhere in between, you know, some shade of gray between his actual persona on screen and what the lawyer is saying who he is off screen? You know, is he somewhere in between? And this is where Steve, you know, wants to be careful. And I agree because we don't know what the man actually believes. We can only really comment on his, his on screen persona. You know, I don't think though, in my opinion, that he is this hyper rational, calculating, critical thinking person off camera. I just, you know, I find I have a hard time. I think as a performer, you know, when you think of him as a performer, someone that is putting on a quote unquote show, that over time he's honed his, um, expertise at delivering what his audience wants or what his perception is of what his audience wants. Now, anybody that has an audience as big as Alex Jones, He's aware of his audience because he's he's gaining a large audience. He's aware of what what people want to hear and the types of things that they want to they want to hear talked about, um, and the way that he's delivering it. So I, I I do think no matter what, I find that to be, you know, true. I think that that's what's actually going on here. But you know, he could be playing his audience. He really could and making a great profit of it off of it. But I, I again, you know, Steve, and this is just my opinion. I just don't think that off camera he's this calm, rational, even tempered type of guy just doesn't but does it have to be that extreme can he just not be as crazy sure there could be any shade of gray in between i'm just you know i am just putting down my two cents on what i think or who you think he's actually that crazy i mean i don't think he's as crazy as he is on camera you know i've had a lot of experience recording myself with the podcast and you know being on camera quite a bit over the last 15 years and yeah i mean when you're on camera i mean you do feel like you, you want the audience to respond. And of course, you know, anybody that, that is performed in any way knows that there's a pressure that comes with it and you want to deliver whatever it is that you're delivering or expected to deliver. But I, I absolutely can see how this type of, um, desire could snowball into, you know, creating an on-screen giant persona that, you know, really, really works. So as an example, let's take a look at Terry Jean Belea, the guy that plays Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan is not, who the man really is. And there was this whole, the, uh, there was a scandal 
surrounding the Hulk Hogan persona. And, you know, a company went out of business because he sued that company. Gawker. Yeah. yeah. Gawker. Yeah, Gawker. Yeah. He sued Gawker. Gawker's and, down. Um, and he won. And it was a, you know, a hundred million dollar lawsuit. It was a huge deal. And we're talking about the man, the actor's personal rights. And, you know, you can't just because the character that he portrays might be, you know, very sexually oriented or, you know, discussing all these things about what they've done or, you know, who they are as the, as the character. It isn't who the real person is. And when you start attacking the real person because of things that he or she has done, while playing a character, I mean, the lines get blurry here, especially with yeah. reality TV based things, you know, things that are, you know, a shade in between the real person and the, the, the on-screen persona. To me, the interesting bit is what this really says about where we are in our society. So I think Alex Jones is like now the perfect representation of our sort of post-truth fake news world media right? entertainment yeah world, right? so he basically what his lawyer on his behalf which is in in legally that's the equivalent of him saying it right he's signing mm-hmm. off on this he's saying he's a performance artist doesn't matter whether you know to what extent he believes what he's saying or not he's saying so i'm not uh, i'm not a the, the person alex jones on Infowars is not a real person who's has like journalistic integrity and responsibility for what he says. It's a character that I'm performing. Yeah, it's and, a Stephen Colbert. Argument. Yeah, it's a Stephen Colbert. And so, yeah. Uh, but th- in this case, there it's like Stephen Colbert. There was always a wink and a nod, right? Even though always, it was obvious. He was it was playing obvious. A, a some, even though some people missed it, that you know, you could argue that's like the onion level. Where yeah, come on, yeah. you know, you should know that this is a wink and a nod. But with Alex Jones, he's straight up. I mean, he expects, he expects his audience to take his character, his persona seriously at face value. And so, uh, what he's saying essentially is the truth doesn't matter. The reality doesn't matter. This is, mm-hmm. uh, news as entertainment. I am, I am right. pretending, yeah, I'm pretending yeah. to be giving, you know, this conspiracy, angry, ranting news. Playing to the emotions, some might argue the the lowest emotions of my target audience as a persona, but that persona isn't me, and therefore I'm yeah. not really responsible for anything that persona says. I could so he's giving himself this out. This it's all satire, That's right. but but yet he doesn't yeah. he doesn't kind of give that. Like when you look at Colbert or John Stewart. Yeah. There were times, multiple times, they would talk about, you know, the vast majority of, of, you know, Americans get their news from the Daily Show. And John Stewart would be like, this is not a news show. Yeah. Like it, it was, there was a lot of transparency. Like this is a comedy show. Like I feel bad for you if you expect to get your news here because I'm not reporting the news. Alex doesn't come with a disclaimer. Disclaimer. Thank you. <laughs> yes. He doesn't come with a disclaimer. If it, it's like he's trying to have it both ways. That's really what yeah. it is. Right. He said on a, on a show, um, after his lawyer's statement, that uh, that's who he really is. His on-camera persona is who he is off-camera, mm-hmm. which I found. Well, I, I was shocked. Yeah, a matter of convenience. I was shocked to hear that. But then, isn't he guilty of perjury? Probably. I mean, well, I don't know if he didn't say. Well, it, it depends. His yeah. lawyer said it. On but his yeah, but I don't know. Well, yeah, but that's you. If you're saying something in court, you're filing a document with the court saying this is your position, and the the client signs that. That's not the attorney's yeah, that's words. True. That's the yeah. that's the client who says that, right? You know, when I file my documents on my lawsuit case, I'm signing them from me as if I wrote you, them. 
Yeah, that's true. You know? Can yeah, you perjure yourself in, yeah, I guess any, yes, any court of law? Sure. I mean, yes, do you, sure. does he have to, but saying it, but he, he's not perjuring himself okay. though by saying it on air. He can just claim that again, that's part of his persona. He can just See, keep going I, down that rat hole. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he has, as far as his audience is concerned, I don't think he has anything to really lose. I don't think a single one of them is going to turn him off because well, of this. That's the other thing is that because yeah. of the nature of his, audience and what he talks about it's you know it's through the looking glass you know so everything is topsy-turvy so he could you know anything is a false flag this whole thing is a false flag he can get away with anything there's no reality right which Mm -hmm. is which is what's so disturbing about all of this that's it's just highlighting for me the fact that this is what you get when you have this infotainment where there's there's no reality, there, yeah. it's all right. it's, res- fake. it's like wrestling compared to yeah. sports. You know, re- wrestling is sports entertainment. Yeah, they call but it. it's, it's but it's always even understood. though they don't say no, this is not real, right? Yeah, but it's so right. understood. But they don't come out and outright mm-hmm. say it. That's true. Right. That's true. And does that turn and right? And does that turn off any wrestling viewers from watching the show? Not many. Yeah, hardly any. And I think the same is true here with Alex. Yeah, but Jones, I would so. I wouldn't yeah. make a direct comparison between wrestling and uh and alex jones because wrestling is not pretending to be news you know well it's pretending to be sports but it isn't really there is a wink and a nod from wrestling too you know but i do agree that blurs the lines a little bit and there's an analogy there but it's just you know it's wrestling so who really cares but this is we're talking about (laughs) you're making accusations about the government and about What's yeah, the, can't we set precedent? Yes, like, why right. don't people sue this guy for libel or for slander? Well, and then, because if he is a legitimate news outlet and he is actually publishing these things or saying these things, he should be able to be taken to task. And he's not veiling it, and in, in you know he won't be able to argue comedy or parody. Um, so he's not really covered. Like, there's like legal precedent for this. So. I find him more of an uh, an op-ed, an opinion. Yeah, rather that's than, true. He's not a he's not a journalist. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't really put him in that classification. All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? So last week I played this noisy. I am perfect. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So that I just a it. lot to answer a lot of listeners' questions. That was not Steve. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I can see how they would get confused there, though. <laughs> so, all right. So, duh, a lot of people knew this. I did that. You know, I wanted people to have an easy win. Yes, uh, this is obvious to certain people. Let me give an, a mm-hmm. little extra hint before mm-hmm. we re- reveal what it is. Maybe this will help a few stragglers. I am nomad. I am perfect. <laughs> that which is imperfect must be sterilized. You are in error. You did not discover your mistake. You've made two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You've made three errors. Error. 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 (laughs) Examine. You are flawed and imperfect. Okay, so what you're hearing here is... Oh, my God. (laughs) Error. That was Nomad from Star Trek, the original series... So the ba- the quick backstory. Classic. Look, I'm going to indulge myself. So <laughs> deal with it. Uh, Nomad Please. was created. This was like a like a a thing. Say about the size of oh, uh, a a water heater. A water heater. Yeah, uh, it was created on Earth in the 21st century. This is all in Star Trek. Okay, this isn't real. 
by a scientist called Jackson <laughs> yeah. Roy Kirk. Nomad's uh, program was to uh, to seek out new life and report it back to Earth. So he was damaged in outer space by a meteor, and Nomad drifted until he found Tanru. Pop Tanru. Tanru. And this was an, another alien probe designed to sterilize soil. Sterilize. So the two the two uh, <laughs> droids, whatever you want to call them, repaired each other, repaired themselves, and they became one one droid after after the repair was done this is called nomad and now nomad's programming was so screwed up that joining with tanru made the two of them now think that they have to destroy anything that is not perfect yeah. all right this is this is the future of artificial intelligence folks right here this is a perfect summary yeah so what happened was captain kirk um he managed to convince the probe that it was imperfect because it made a mistake because the probe thought that captain kirk was uh kirk or, or was, it was this Roy guy Kirk, yeah. Roy, Kirk, Roy Kirk, who actually created um, the original probe sent from Earth? So he uses a logic trap to make the. Uh, at the end, you hear Nomad going error. Right. You know, Nomad is all confused, and Captain Kirk used this uh, this ploy in many episodes to yeah. mess up many sure AIs. Did. Norman, and, yeah. Norman, I'm mud. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of his superpowers. All right, so a lot of people wrote in. <laughs> I got a lot of fun comments. Uh, the winner for last week was Rich Rogalado, and uh, Rich said that's Nomad MK-15C space probe from the original series Star Trek episode, The Changeling. So I thought that was uh, – I, li- I love it when people write back the uh, the perfect information. It kind of reminds me of when Bob ends his uh, – you know, the superheroes of science, the unknown yeah. heroes of science where you get into that – the uh, techno babble at the end. Yeah. It's real. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had a, I had a couple of uh, uh, notables here. So Todd Dart wrote in, um, I imagine I am only one of a plethora of Star Trek geeks who recognize this week's Who's That Noisy? But that is the voice of Vic Perrin. So this guy, this actor named Vic Perrin actually voiced Nomad. I never wow. knew that before. Thank you for that piece of trivia. That was fun. All right. So that was fun. Thank you all for uh, putting up with my, you know, my little slice of geekdom that I had to throw in there that week. I needed mm-hmm. it. I needed a boost. Steve got me sick. I completely blame Steve for the, whole <laughs> for the fourth time this episode. Yes. <laughs> so I have a new noisy. I hope you enjoy it. So that was a noisy sent in by Marcel Jansessens. Jansessens. Christian Thank you, Marcel. What the heck is it? If you have any idea what that is, or if you heard something cool this week, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Jay, I have an answer to your illness problem. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... Thanks for that noisy. That's really a cool one. All right. We have a question from our Facebook page, and the question is this. Hi there. I wanted to verify something, if possible. The article from WebMD states, a varied healthy diet consisting of foods as unprocessed and true to their natural form as possible is as essential to your skin's health as it is to your overall health. 
But based on the postings of this page, meaning our Facebook page, I was under the impression that this is the, the appeal to nature fallacy, that there's no chemical difference between natural foods and non-natural. So which is true, I'd really appreciate some help. Thanks. So what do you guys think? Mm, it depends. <laughs> so yeah, it depends, meaning that the fact that the food is processed is meaningless. Yeah, but if it's processed with all sugar, then it's probably yeah, not as good for but, you. But then, you know, then what you should say is you should avoid foods that have high amounts of processed sugar or mm -hmm. refined sugar. Uh, so yeah, so but the the, the key is that it's definitely phrased as an appeal to nature fallacy, right? That uh, you want to eat food that is as true to their natural form as possible. Why? What difference does it make? If you yeah. cut up an apple, is it any less of an apple? If you make it into applesauce, you know, is it any less of the same constituents? I mean, how much processing do you have to do before something is not natural? Well, um, and also put processing foods makes it so that they're shelf stable and makes it so that you can actually eat them. So yeah. for a lot of people, if they don't eat processed food, they can't get food. Like it's actually quite important right. to be able to feed people that are not near to the farm. Process and to fortify. Yeah, for example, processing food might make it better. You might fortify it, make it more digestible, make it yeah more Absolutely. less likely to spoil. Uh, you might actually remove some things that are that are not good for you there. So processing could be neutral; it could make it better, or you could load it up with fat and sugar, and and that's not good for you. But yeah. the the how natural it is is completely irrelevant to how healthful it is. So that you're getting people to focus on the wrong thing. And I do think that that's very right. highly problematic. Right? It's, it's so a, common. It's such yeah. a common argument. Like I have friends. I live in Hollywood. Hollywood is full of woo. I literally have friends who have looked in my refrigerator and been like, oh, you have ultra pasteurized milk. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get ultra not infected by it. <laughs> like I don't understand why people think it's not good to pasteurize milk. <laughs> Because that's not how it came out of the cow. I know. It's like, no, <laughs> like, we have what? avoided so many health crises because of pasteurization. But it's processed, Please. right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink it with all the like blood and bacteria in it. Thank, yeah, thank you. you. <laughs> right. So I mean, I, I, it's very similar to like the problem with GMOs, like the problems that people have with GMOs, if they're they're either not true or they're irrelevant to GMOs. They're focusing on yeah. the wrong thing. Like if you think, oh, we're you know, taking too simplistic approach to pest management. Okay, then yeah. sure, you should you should you know promote an integrated pest management, you know, which can be perfectly compatible with you know genetically modified yeah. organisms. Yeah. These are two or you more shouldn't be able to patent things. food. Like a big ag shouldn't patent food. Food should be free. It's like that is a totally different conversation we could be having. When you read the word natural, think marketing. Yeah, <laughs> good call. Think marketing. That is all. Exactly. Not nutrition. Well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. You've heard us talk about The Great Courses Plus before. We're talking about it again because we're such big fans. You can get unlimited access to stream their entire library of amazing video lectures and learn all sorts of topics from award-winning experts. You can learn about physics, psychology, history, philosophy, even photography and cooking because there are over 8,000 lectures to choose from. Yeah, they add new ones all the time. And man, this week's course, we actually 
weren't sure. We weren't sure, but then we watched <laughs> it, right, Steve? What's it called? Yeah, so they're gonna. Th- it's the remarkable science of ancient astronomy. Uh-huh. You know, featuring lectures on Stonehenge, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Antikythera mechanism, astrology. Uh, but but it's all legit. It's like the actual astronomy that ancient cultures were able to do, and what and how that influenced their culture, how that led to modern science, etc. It's all legit. So you could sign up for the Great Courses Plus with our special URL, and you'll immediately get a free trial from for unlimited access to all their lectures. And you can watch all of the Great Courses Plus on your smartphone, on your tablet, laptop, TV, any device you have, you will be able to watch it. So sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one is fake news. Or <laughs> one is an alternative news item. <laughs> or or, or news like entertainment. you have to tell me yeah. which one is the fake. Just three regular items <laughs> this week. You ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Item number one, in a new study, researchers find that neurons are able to form a network in the absence of synaptic activity. Item number two, scientists have shown that homing pigeons are able to pass on knowledge to subsequent generations, the first non-primate species to demonstrate this ability. And item number three, scientists find that even starting with a single female cockroach, they are able to reproduce asexually and indefinitely maintain a large population. Jay, go first. <clears throat> this study um, saying that neurons are able to form a network in the absence of synaptic activity. All right. Now, I think that there is a tricky little thing in here when Steve's saying there's an absence of synaptic activity. It doesn't mean that the neurons aren't still communicating um, in, in another way. Oh, damn. Okay. That's actually exactly what it means, that they're not communicating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So hold on. So, you know, because I know that the brain has a lot of like communication is happening on m- multiple levels and, and, and in different ways. Um, but you're saying that to be specific here, there's no elect- electrical signals going from one neuron to the next. But they're That's still correct. able to form a network. How would they do that? Are they communicating through the blood? I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. I got to put that one on hold. Let's go on to the next one. Scientists have shown that homing pigeons, they can pass on knowledge to their to their kids and other friends and neighbors. I think this one is science um, because I own a bird and I know how intelligent birds are and it just doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, so I will say that one is science. And this last one, I hope that I know what, which, what this is because I don't know enough about the first one. So this one is that... Scientists, you know, they're even starting with a single female cockroach. They're able to reproduce asexually and indefinitely maintain a large population. Well, that does kind of make sense with how I perceive these filthy cockroaches. They can take one female and just keep making making more cockroaches, huh? Yeah, I think that I will um, I will not say that insects can't do weird stuff like that. So I'm going to say that the first one, the one about neurons, is definitely the fiction. Okay, Evan. Uh, I'll take them in reverse order. 
Scientists find that even starting with a single female cockroach, was that a movie? Oh, that was single white female, uh, able to reproduce asexually. Well, I could have sworn I read a long time ago that there was a myth about cockroaches being able to reproduce asexually, but that was, that was a long time ago. I hadn't really thought about it or read much about it since. So I'm thinking maybe 15 years ago, but. Uh, certainly they, you know, scientists learn, have learned a lot in 15 years. And perhaps this is one of the things that they have discovered that yes, uh, there is asexual reproduction occurring within the female, uh, cockroach. So I have a feeling that one's going to be science. The next one about homing pigeons passing on knowledge to subsequent generations. Hmm. And the first non-primate species to demonstrate it. Very interesting. Homing pigeons specifically, huh? Yeah, uh, I have a feeling also that this one is going to be science. Well, that leaves the one about neurons forming a network in the absence of synaptic activity. The one I know the least about, I suppose, of the three items. So I'm going to have to go with Jay. I'll say that that one's the fiction. Okay, Bob? The synapses, I could kind of see that some networks could potentially form because, you know, just like these gross networks that are most likely going to be formed and then the, maybe all the fine tuning can be you know that requires synaptic act- activity um i mean I, I could imagine that 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 could possibly work I, mean, I, don't, I don't obviously don't know enough about it to say clearly this can't happen because of blah 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 the birds one, the bird one yeah i'm just i'm buying i'm totally buying that birds are awesome um so that one's i say that's science the last one here the uh, the cockroach man, I'm, I'm having trouble with that too. Cockroaches reproducing asexually? That just granted, I don't know much about cockroach sexuality, but that just doesn't seem right. Screw it, I'm gonna go with cockroach fiction. Okay, Kara. Okay, I'm gonna start in the middle. Homing pigeons <laughs> are able to pass on knowledge to subsequent generations. The first non-primate species to demonstrate this ability. This one seems like it could be science, but maybe it's not the first non-primate species. You know, that's a real kicker right there. But I'm going to go with the group and say that that one is science. What I'm struggling with in the neuron one is the clarification that you gave to Jay. In a new study, researchers find that neurons are able to form a network in the absence of synaptic activity. Well, they definitely have to communicate in order to organize. That said, you're not defining synaptic synaptic activity. Like you're not defining it as requiring neurotransmitter. I bet you you could cheat if you if you you know jolted the presynaptic and postsynaptic cells into thinking that they were communicating, even though there was no um, neurotransmitter release, so that it was purely electric and not electrochemical. But since it doesn't qualify that. It's, it's just so top line. Like this one's really vague. So it's bothering me. Um, scientists find that even starting with a single female cockroach, they're able to reproduce asexually and indefinitely maintain a large population. How could they ever know that? How could they ever know it was indefinite? That bugs me. I uh, do think. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think I know that cockroaches can do parthenogenesis like sharks can. I think I've read that, but I don't know. This has so many details. A single female cockroach. Maybe you need more than one. Uh, reproduce asexually. Okay, that part I get. And indefinitely maintain a large population. Maybe they can only make a small population, or maybe it dies out after you know two two goes, or maybe their offspring can't reproduce. Ah, uh, I don't know if I go with the group or if I go with Bob. 
I don't know how they could make a network without any functional neurons, but maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Maybe the neurons are functional. They're just cheating somehow and skipping what I think of as classical synapse. But I'm still going to go with the guys and say the neuron one's fiction. Okay. All right, Bob, you're all you're, on your own there. You're but all you dead But you all me. agree on the second <laughs> one. So we'll start there. Scientists have shown that homing pigeons are able to pass on knowledge to subsequent generations, the first non-primate species to demonstrate this ability. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Yes. Yay. Yes, birds is Pigeon. smart. So <laughs> – uh, the, the way they, they looked at the efficiency with which homing pigeons uh, homed, <laughs> did their thing, <laughs> and that they found that they were gradually able to improve their flight paths over time and that this, this improvement was passed down to subsequent generations, so that the learning was passed on to younger pigeons. So passed on genetically or passed on through teaching? Through Well, it must have been culturally, yeah. Culturally. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, Cultural. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for teaching, you know, yeah, basically yeah. that knowledge, you know. So th- essentially there was cumulative knowledge across generations. That Each generation wasn't starting from scratch. So that that's very interesting. And again, that's uh, cool. you know, obviously humans do that. We have cultural generational knowledge. Um, it, it, there are have been like uh, monkeys that teach each other how to do things like, you know, f- fish potatoes out of sand or whatever or you know wash wash <laughs> wash the food why are there, the, why are there potatoes in well, sand no, they, no, they wash them off you know in the water oh. <laughs> it's like it's uh, an arbitrary life skill there yeah 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 <laughs> you know like those uh what are they called the sand potatoes the sand potatoes it's coarse it gets everywhere <laughs> the worst i do get that one <laughs> Yeah, but this is the first time in a non-primate species they have shown very this. Cool. Yeah, uh, very cool. I bet you though that they'll they'll find it like the dolphins do similar things. Probably I bet you somebody, oc- octopuses do too. Somebody mm-hmm. email us, you but the, the 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 scientific report that I'm reading said this is an Oxford University, so they're saying this is the first time in non-primates. So yeah. I'm I'm just quoting them. So we just need to go demonstrate it in other species now. Yeah, could be. All right, let's go back to number one. In a new study, researchers find (laughs) that neurons are able to form a network in the absence of synaptic activity. Evan, Jay, Mm -hmm. and Kara think Mm -hmm. this one is the fiction. Mm -hmm. Bob thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Yeah. Wow. Good job, Bob. Solo win for Bob. Yeah, this one's interesting. This one. So how'd they do it? Yeah. How'd they do it? Come on. Was I close? Was, was my guess anywhere near Wireless? Uh, what no. are we talking here? So no, it wasn't just they, they genetically engineered a strain of mice that cannot produce glutamate in the hippocampus. So they essentially can't secrete the neurotransmitter mm-hmm. that is responsible for forming networks. And to see if those mice would still have any behavior that requires networks. And, uh, and they did. They, so the, the idea here is, so uh, we know that neurons that fire together wire together, right? That's the mantra That's in, in neurology. Yeah. yeah. So that they, when neurons communicate through neurotransmitters, that causes them to network together. Uh, they, you know, they make connections between each other. Um, however, it does seem that animals and even people are born with some uh, behaviors already cooked in. And the question was, well, th- are these networks able to form purely genetically without any 
neuronal activity. And so that's been studied for a while. There actually was a previous study where they uh, looked at mice that were altered so that um, their neurons didn't function at all. Uh, but though they died very quickly, though, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So <laughs> the advance here was, but although it did seem that they did have some, you know, working networks in among their neurons, but they just didn't really develop very much because they just died so quickly. So here they, they, they had more limited, you know, deficits in these mice. They weren't able to make certain neurotransmitters for certain networks, but their neurons weren't totally gimped. So they still were able to function long enough for them to, although they were impaired, they were able to, you know, develop into adults. And what they found was that even the neurons that were unable to communicate uh, electrochemically still were engaging in networks. Um, and that they, they were probably genetically determined. So that mm. neurons will will form a network, at least some basic networks that are entirely based on genetic information and not on neuronal activity, not on you know firing connection among the neurons. But you said uh, they only knocked out glutamate. Well, that's what they said. So couldn't they have been using a different excitatory neurotransmitter? But these were glutamate neurons. You know, there's like some neurons yeah. only use one neurotransmitter. If you no, knock I out know, but like also, I feel like maybe we need to know what's going on in a glutamate neuron that can't synthesize glutamate because maybe they have a secondary way to use a different neurotransmitter. That's always it's one study. So yes, yeah. you have to ask about what else might be going on, but. Uh, that was their hypothesis. That what that's what they showed, and it does make sense in that you know you're they say that animals are born with networks even before they really had a chance to do anything, um, right? Like you know, horses can run like minutes after being born or something, right? I mean, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> still like so like yeah. But <laughs> would you call it a network if they're not synaptically connected? Like yeah, the they, that's the thing. They are sy- they are connected. That's the whole point. Okay. They are connected. The synapse is there. It's just totally dysfunctional, or I should say, non-functional. It's completely quiet, yeah. and they're sure. Yeah, so they so they it formed a network. I didn't say the networks themselves were functioning because they're not. They're yeah. not producing glutamate, but they were formed. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the that's the interesting bit is that the networks can form from some other. There's something else forming those networks. That's what they. That's the follow-up studies they need to do. Then, how are these networks forming if they're not just responding to neurotransmitters, which is the usual thing that we know about? Yeah, right? like the neurites grow because they want to yeah. find those trophic factors, and they like hand they hang out in the in the right place. Yeah, because I guess there are trophic factors that are non. They're, they're, uh, yeah, neurotransmitter. Exactly. Yeah, it could just be proteins that are doing it, and that's, right. that would all be encoded in the DNA. That's exactly. True. That's what they think. That's exactly what they think. So mm. obviously, we need to do a lot of follow-up study, but this is cool. It's a new wrinkle, you know, and it kind of makes sense. Again, the reason why they uh, thought about this wrinkle. was because, yeah, it was because uh, <laughs> of the idea that there are some networks which are genetically determined that are not based on on use or function. They're just there because of the genes. So this supports that. Interesting. Okay, let's go to number three. Scientists find that even starting with a single female cockroach, they are able to reproduce asexually and indefinitely maintain a large population. So uh, that one is the fiction, but Kara is right. Cockroaches cockroaches are able to asexually reproduce. Parthenogenesis, a lot of species can, uh, a lot of you know insects as well as some amphibians, reptiles, etc. Can How does do that. that? Work? It's a X to X. That's why only females can do it. Yeah, Men so can do it because if you had two Ys, it would abort. Yeah, right. So yeah. Uh, usually this strategy is a way of sort of temporarily maintaining your population numbers 
in the absence of uh, available males, right? So, but what, what the study and previous studies, this is a follow up to previous studies, and what, you know, together what they show is that while cockroaches can do this, if uh, a single female cockroaches uh, will do it very little and the population will die out very quickly. When you mm-hmm. have multiple females together, they are able to to produce asexually much more quickly and maintain a larger population. But even then, it's only temporary. So like about three years, which is still a long time, but not indefinitely. Yeah. So, Fuck, the, so that's a, it, the yeah. indefinitely. I, I the indefinitely saw was, it. That was definitely <laughs> the thing that you were correct. So, yeah. The, so, yeah, so asexual reprodu- reproduction is a stopgap measure, right? It's just mm-hmm. something you do just so that you can maintain your population. So I guess in some populations, like numbers matter, like just for the survival, you need to have numbers and and then if so if you're going through a dip in the population this is a little hedge against that so the you know the females can just produce asexually you you sacrifice your genetic diversity because you don't really yeah. have a lot of genetic diversity when you do that but you could at least maintain your numbers for mutual defense or whatever it is that you need your numbers for until you know you can uh, have you know the, there are enough males available to to uh, revert back to sexual reproduction, but these are always temporary stopgap measures, and that's what this showed as well. The, the really the new bit here was that, like, if you have five or six female cockroaches, do better together. They do it much quickly and much more efficiently than a single uh, female cockroach can't really do it very well. And why is that? Is it because they help take care of the young, or is it be some sort of hormone situation that's happening? That's a good question. What they found was that it is some kind of hormone the females are secreting to each other, mm. because if you get rid of their hormone-sensing antenna, the effect goes away. But it's not the sex pheromones. So it's, so so it's, it's some different. It's some some non pheromone hormonal signal that the females yeah. are exchanging that are triggering the parthenogenesis. Yeah, it's going to be oxytocin, isn't it? Who knows? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know if cockroaches knows. have oxytocin. I don't know either. <laughs> it sounds like a complex molecule for them, but who right. knows? Right, right, right. So this is pretty much in line with what we know about parthenogenesis. The, if it, indefinitely maintaining a large population would definitely be new. And and that it did not show that. That's well, yeah, that's, and it would be genetically inferior, right? It like yeah. would not be advantageous for a species to be able to do that. But since they did this like in a lab, yeah, you know, it, it seems like lab. you can push past kind of some of those evolutionary limits in a lab. But I guess in this case, you can't. All right, well, good job, Bob. Good solo win this week. Yeah, nice Go, job, Bob. Yeah, yeah, Bob. Well done. All right, Evan, give us a quote this week. All right, well, the quote this week was suggested by listener Joel. Glenister, thank you, Joel, for suggesting this, because I really do like it. The world we live in is beautiful to look at, but it's even more beautiful to understand. Hmm. Quote comes from Professor Brian Cox. We do love Brian Cox, English physicist, professor of particle physics, the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Manchester. Perhaps you've seen him on any number of science shows that you've enjoyed from BBC or other channels in which he breaks down very complex subjects, most eloquently, most beautifully, and presents them to people, much in the same way Carl Sagan used to do, I find. I think he has a lot of those same exact talents. So Brian Cox. Yeah, he's a great science communicator. Absolutely. Fantastic. He is. He's very talented. Fantastic. And very likable. Just a likable guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Always yeah. always smiling, always pleasant, that nice voice. He's got it all. Which you got to be, yeah. Definitely. He's not an asshole like we are. <laughs> no, we're elitist, Steve. Yeah, we're elitist that's assholes. Right. Yeah. 
this is like the unweaving the rainbow thing, which I totally agree with. You know, I, the, I've even when I was very young, I rejected this argument that oh, if you try to understand reductionist scientifically how things work, then you, they lose their beauty and mystery and bullshit. Oh my god! No way. Yeah, that's no. layers to the. I beauty. know Come you on. appreciate things so much more. I mean, you know, you could you know you appreciate the beauty in a spiral galaxy when you know a little bit something about scale and how galaxies work and how complicated the they are. Dark all that matter. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's there is absolutely beauty in understanding the natural world. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I mean, a flat Earth is gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) It's only mostly flat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.